1: good evening and welcome to another edition of today with dr wendy we are delighted to have you join us tonight i am here with my co-host larry dersham and we have a great show for you as always the hardest part of putting on this show week to week is figuring out what to hit what to focus on what to talk about there is so much news every single week and it's even getting more of a complicated analysis the closer we get to the election speaking of getting close to the election one of the headlines this week uh is of course we're still talking about it was the confirmation hearings for judge barrett now um acb as she's being called uh really did a great job i almost said on the stand let's say in the hot seat being grilled for, count them, 11 hours the first day she was questioned and nine hours the second. I have to say that was a tough job for Democrats. Her opening statement was so gracious. Um, she's such a gifted orator. She's likable. She's both conservative and confirmable, as I often say. And that's not just because the, Dem- the Republicans have the math. She came across as warm as humanizing. I mean, what did she say? She's used to being in a group of nine. She has seven kids. Uh, she made all the appropriate jokes about what it's like raising seven kids, as well as growing up as the oldest of seven siblings herself. It was hard, I think. Maybe I'm just taking too a gracious view of humanity. I thought it must have been hard for some of those Democratic senators to ask her the questions they did, especially when they already knew she couldn't answer them. These are smart people doing the questioning. They know that she can't violate, as we call ironically, the Ginsburg rule, uh, giving her opinion on cases that aren't before her. They know she can't do that. So we recognize that many of their questions were actually statements designed more towards the American people than towards the, the, the nominee. I almost felt like the judge was sitting there in the hot seat watching arrows fly over her head as Democrats and Republicans sort of had at it with each other. But nonetheless, she was poised, she was polished, she was professional, she did a phenomenal job, and the hearings were more about process than merits. So, you know, be that as it may, um, she will be confirmed. Everybody knows that. And in fact, some of the Democratic senators even said as much. They were basically saying, some of them, when you sit on the court, I want you to remember this. So they were sort of conceding that the numbers are there. It's not magic, it's math. Um, And they just wanted her to remember that she's promising here to do her job, uh, not to be swayed by her personal convictions, but to follow the law that she's already taken an oath in the Seventh Circuit to do. And she will be taking an oath here in the Supreme Court to do as well. But, Larry, in terms of what you saw this week, Yes, we understand that this is not Justice Scalia that's being reconfirmed. She's not Justice Scalia reincarnated. And, you know, why was it back in the day that these justices got confirmed unanimously? And nowadays, we know it's going to be straight down the party line and there will never be any surprises. Forget about the fact that three Democratic senators broke rank and voted to confirm Judge Barrett for the Seventh Circuit. Why don't we ever expect to see any of this now?
2: Right. I think Amy Coney Barrett's a conservative originalist. Simply put, the Democrats do not want to see a conservative originalist judge be placed on the Supreme Court to fill the vacancy left by liberal Justice Ginsburg. In their minds, this will tip the bounce of the Supreme Court in favor of a conservative interpretation of the issues brought before the court. Uh, their biggest fear and this is in my opinion, is that Justice Barrett will give the court the majority it needs to overturn Roe v. Wade should that opportunity present itself.
1: So we also have all of this pushback, um, and we've talked about this on previous shows, where the Democrats don't want a Republican appointing a justice in an election year. Okay, and I'm sure they'd be doing the same thing. We've talked about the distinctions between party and power, party in the White House, et cetera. But what else about that? Is there any validity to that argument?
2: Yeah, I don't think so. Wendy, uh, way back in 2016, uh, Way back.
1: I love it. Way back. It certainly seems like way back, doesn't it? It does. Decades ago. Right. (laughs) And and,
2: uh, Mr. President Obama was getting towards the end of his term, and he tried to appoint Merrick Garland uh, to the high court, but it just didn't work out because the Senate was controlled by the Republicans, the opposite party. So that was huge. He was in his last few months of his last term in office. One big difference here is uh, Mr. Trump is in the end of his first term of office, should he be elected, he will have four more years to be accountable to the people if he chooses the wrong nominee for Supreme Court. And I, I think that's, that's really key. And, and in fact, you'd have to go back to President Grover Cleveland in 1888, and that's before my time, to find the last example <laughs> of a Supreme Court nominee of the president being confirmed by the opposite party in an election year.
1: Well, I like how you say it's before your time, Larry, because you're so (laughs) good on history that uh, it almost seems like you were there to witness all of these things that we talk about. Well, we have to talk about court packing. And one of the reasons this has come up so frequently recently is because think about this. If Judge Barrett, I should say when Judge Barrett is confirmed, which she will be because the numbers are there. um, When she's confirmed, it will be a 6 3 conservative majority. Now I understand chief justice Roberts doesn't always vote with the conservative majority, but so what? So he doesn't. So then it's a five, four conservative majority, but this issue of court packing, I mean, this has become, it's actually been made a headline by Joe Biden's refusal to, to commit to what he's going to do if he's elected. So, um, I mean, what say you about the significance of this issue for the upcoming election?
2: I say, uh- What the Democrats want, again, in my opinion, is to pack the court with justices who will implement their desired policies. Something the court has forbidden uh, to do uh, is to you know, actually make law. They're supposed to interpret law. But what's interesting, Wendy, is Article 3 of the Constitution doesn't set the number of justices for the Supreme Court. The last time Congress changed the number of Supreme Court justices was back in 1869. However, the Congress does have authority to change that number. And uh, changing that number is considered by some to be one of the tools that Congress can use to rein in a president that they don't like. And just briefly, FDR tried to pack the court when the Supreme Court back in the 1930s was refusing to pass his New Deal legislation. Now, what's interesting about that is he threatened to, again, pack the court with as many as 15 New uh, justices. And shortly after that, uh, all of a sudden, the Supreme Court back in 1937 started to rule in favor of his New Deal legislation, and that's called a switch in time that saved nine.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. And you know what, Larry, think about think about this as a practical matter. Um, academically, it's an interesting intellectual exercise. But what would that look like in real life? Think about this. So nine justices now Democrats add, what, three more Then Republicans regain power. They add three more. I mean, where would that end? Can you imagine? I mean, here we envision the nine justices. Nine's a great number. And I'm quoting the late Justice Ginsburg for that one. Eight is not a good number, right, because you need to be at full steam. But nine is doable. It's manageable. It is, it is one of the things that's characterized the jurisprudence of the highest court in the land for what? What is that, 150 years? I know you weren't there in 1869 either, but that's a long time. It is. And what's, what, what I think is significant, you can tell me if you agree, and, and, and more importantly, what you think Joe and Kamala are going to do, but it's significant that in all that time, there's been different balances of power majority-wise, conservative versus liberal on the Supreme Court, and it has never been changed. So there's a recognition, it seems, by both sides that you can't just continue to expand that number. I mean, that would be a slippery slope, and you know, as lawyers, we hate slippery slopes. Right. You wouldn't be able to decide when you have too much of a good thing in terms of justice as appointed for life to the highest court in the land.
2: It was also interesting. Think about this. Justices appointed to, for life. I mean, I don't think that's, right. that's engraved in stone. I mean, why is that? I mean, is, it could be a good thing because I think those people will say that because they're appointed to life, they can make tough decisions, and not worried about being fired if the Congress doesn't like their tough decisions that should be based on the rule of law.
1: Uh, Well, one other thing that you might want to weigh in on about being appointed for life is one of the reasons that um, Judge Barrett came under such fire, not her particular, remember I said the arrows were going right over her, but her nomination came under uh, such criticism is that 48 years old, she will literally be available to change the face of jurisprudence for years to come. And I don't know about you, but that was one of the reasons that I found her Her responses during the course of that hearing to I would think that would be comforting to Democrats that she was repeatedly stating that she had no intention of getting in there and being a judicial activist.
2: Exactly. You know, one of the moments that I loved and I didn't see this because we were driving on a a trip, but I heard uh, they said, show us your notes. And she lifted up a notepad and there was not, I don't think, any writing on it. Yet she had such a grasp of the case law, of the statutory law. It was just, I thought that was a classic moment. I'm going to have to pull that up on YouTube because I did miss seeing that. But I heard about it. It's so amazing.
1: You know, Larry, I saw it and I can tell you I have I have never seen anything quite like that in a hearing quite this important. She was reciting the facts of cases who, whether it was a majority or a plurality opinion. I mean, she knew all those facts without looking at any notes. And that was something the senators knew as well, at least the Republican senators. So I just thought that was fantastic. So that is, um, we'll be talking about this confirmation hearing for a long time, easily going to be confirmed, but we are going to have a very special guest that's going to join us in a minute for the second half. Um, And he's going to answer this question. Do you understand all the propositions on the ballot? If you said yes, you were in the minority. If you said no, you will want to hang with us until after the break because our next guest is going to break down these propositions in a way that's understandable, that is digestible, and that will be reviewable for you when you get that ballot and decide to cast your vote. So stay with us. You are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy and we will be back in a flash. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. We're delighted you stayed on with us because you are going to be very glad you listened to our next guest. So here is why he is such an important voice today. You are going to get your ballot if you haven't already, and you're going to be faced with the usual candidates, right? We've got the presidential race. We've got local races, mayor, city council, all of the elected offices. But then you also have those propositions. Now, we know you've probably been just papered with mailers, with TV ads, with all sorts of paraphernalia that talks about these propositions from one side or the other. There are persuasive arguments on both sides, but what in the world do you do with all that information, if you can even keep it straight, what groups are for or against different propositions? But Larry, I understand that we have somebody here today who is going to help make sense of some of the legal jargon and really make it more understandable for the listeners.
2: Yes, Wendy. I'd like to introduce to our audience Frank Caser. Before retirement, Frank was a physicist in the Department of Defense Intelligent Community for over 35 years, and he was also a senior systems engineer with SAIC. As a Christian worldview political activist, he currently serves as the director of research, content, and curriculum for Well-Versed Ministries, and he's also the founder and executive director of the Christian Citizenship Council that publishes what's called Caser's Call, which has provided a biblical perspective on every California statewide proposition since 2002. That's a lot of work to do that. His most recent book is Christian F- Fratricide, Why Christians Continue to be Divided Politically. Welcome to the program, Frank.
3: Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So, Frank, I am fascinated on how one makes the transition from physicist to political activist. I suppose we'll have you back to talk about that uh, that road into the new chapter of your life. Um, But for purposes of today, I mean, we are uh, sometimes baffled by the text of some of these propositions. And I know you've advised me before, text first, first read the text, and then you can go and enjoy some of the persuasive arguments on both sides. But the ones I want to talk to you about um, are really kind of business-minded propositions, 21 and 22. Um, and I'll just start with 21, this, this whole issue of rent control. And if you could give us sort of just the very concise Cliff Notes version uh, of what exactly this would do. I understand that 21 and 22 are about governmental interference to some extent and whether people should be able to take the initiative and make their own decisions as to how they're going to do business. But in terms of 21, what would you really say is the essence of that proposition for our listeners?
3: Well, fundamentally, it's really it's the issue comes down to what's the role of government. And in 21, what it's doing, if that passes, it basically gives control to cities and counties to exercise control over what the landowner can rent his property for. There's exceptions here and there and wherever. But really, it basically says there's a limit or a cap on how much they can charge for rent for their properties. And it's spaced out over years. It can only go up so much. So it basically... Prevents them from doing fair market value, if you will, uh, if there's an expanding market.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to to think about it. And you know, you want you want basically housing to be both available and affordable, and you have to figure out how can you have both. Uh, If you have rent control, at least that's those are some of the arguments that are being made. Well, let me move it from 21 to 22 right next door, where, again, we are talking about the freedom to engage in your own contractual obligations and decisions when it comes to how you're going to be employed. Now, I call this the survival of the side hustle because we are talking about the future of Uber and Lyft. This is so important for so many of us that have just grown to rely on these rideshare apps. For everything. And it's not just those of us that travel a lot. It's people who drink too much. Let's just be really honest about it. It is, talk about affordable and available, I would say the same goes here. And what exactly would Prop 22 do if it were to be passed?
3: Okay, well, the state uh, California legislature passed AB5, which basically limits the amount or the number of independent contractors that can operate within the state. And in effect, then, it does away with Uber and Lyft. Because those are independent contractors like they talk about in the proposition it says app based um, businesses, which is what controls those you know, application of those individuals for wide share and delivery services, it basically wipes those out. So what this proposition does, if this passes is basically exempts wide share and delivery companies that are app based applications of services that provide us as consumers a better product I would maintain and a, 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 a better, cheaper product for those services that we need. It basically gets down to, again, what's the role of government? And I would maintain when government does things like this, it basically is muzzling the ox, if you will. That's the biblical term. It prevents <laughs> people from negotiating between uh, a, a person who's an emplo- not an employee but contracting for a service between the company that provides it and the person who actually does this, the service. So it minimizes their ability to do that. I would say, biblically, that's, that's Creating uh, it's, it's hampering free enterprise, and that's not appropriate. What it's trying to do is create more union-based services that, in effect, are going to become more inefficient, more costly, and, and negative for us as consumers.
2: Wow, Frank, there's so many uh, propositions here that is so interesting, and, and some of them are fairly difficult to understand, it, but we need to understand them. So I have a, a curiosity about Prop 3, uh, 15. And I understand supporters of Prop 15 are trying to chip away at Prop 13, which is now enshrined in our state constitution that places limits on how much counties in California can raise property taxes, but they're doing it kind of a tricky way, right? Is, is that actually endangering Prop 13,
3: this new Prop 13, uh, 15? You're talking about Prop 15, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, in effect, what it does Prop 15 is trying to establish a split, split role tax system so you treat businesses and industry properties different than you do like private uh, property. Uh, So it's chipping away at what the protections were that Prop 13 did so many years ago. In effect, it's basically saying, hey, these businesses have been around for a while, they've they've had the benefits of the Prop 13 uh, tax uh, limitation, if you will, and if they don't move, they don't grow, and they're not reassessed, then they get the benefit of only being increased, having a property tax increase just a little bit each year. So basically it's saying that's not right. They should be taxed at current market value. And matter of fact, every three years or even more often, so that the state can accrue as much possible property tax revenues that they can. So it's in effect it's targeting businesses in a discriminatory fashion, saying, Hey, we're gonna we're going to force you to pay more property taxes than other components that were protected by Prop thirteen. So this is just a step forward. You divide and conquer. Exactly. That's It's going to do with other
2: things. Their next step, I think, is to go after the homeowners, if they can get this through. That's what I worry about. Now, there's another interesting one, Prop 16. Is that basically an attempt to uh, reinstate affirmative action?
3: That's my take on it. Uh, Prop 209, back in 1996, it was put in place. It basically said the state or public entities uh, cannot hire or contract in a, in a discriminatory fashion, using race, sex, color, ethnicity, national origin, any other criteria you talk about, in a discriminatory fashion. Um, and that, that's what we call the affirmative action back in the day. So in reality, what that prevented from happening is the government imposing its will to try to get equal outcomes as opposed to equal opportunities. To me, biblically, the work you get, whether you're employed or you get a contract, should be based on merit. It should not be based on these non-relevant items. Hundred percent, I agree. Decision making by the state.
2: Wow!
1: And then you know, wh- one ahead, of the Wendy. things that really characterizes um, your advice in terms of all the propositions is you've really made clear that you, because you're an expert on these things, you make sure you understand that text first. You know, it's kind of like we've been talking about with the confirmation hearings: originalist, textualist. You want to look at what does the proposition say um sadly or maybe maybe not sadly i suppose it depends on who you talk to but lawyers on both sides of any proposition can make wonderful arguments that make the proposition sound good to one side or the other that's their jobs But if people really want to understand, especially these propositions when it comes to governmental interference, some propositions are very easy to understand, and it's hard to make arguments that make them sound any different than they look on paper. But that doesn't characterize all of them. And I mean, Prop 22 is a great example when you're talking about a gig economy and the flexibility it gives you and something that impacts so many people. What would you say are maybe three very important things that anybody should do and consider in evaluating any proposition on the ballot? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, uh, I'll say, in preference to that, one month ago, I downloaded all the proposition from the state, the Secretary of State website. It's 191 pages total of legal text. Wow. So that's what wow. we are voting on. We're not voting on arguments pro and against. We're not voting on who put the petition together to get it on a ballot. It's that legal text. So that's what we're accountable for. say we're accountable for every careless word we speak. Same thing is true for every idle. Vote that we cast. That's who we <laughs> I love that. At, not
1: <laughs> okay, Frank. If people want to find out more about your work and the propositions on the ballot, also where do they go?
3: Um, they can do a Google search on Christian Citizenship Council. It's pretty easy. It'll pop up, and you go there, and it'll be the, the longer analysis that I have on all these propositions. And also, by the way, all the county-wide uh, measures—all 25 of them. I have my analysis there for them to look at. So, or they can send me an email, case I'll be happy to answer any questions.
1: I think that's just great. You know, the, the most important thing I think people get out of some of these discussions that we're having is how important it is to vote. You know, regardless of how you vote, just the process, being engaged in the, in, engaging your civic duty, going to, and I say going to because I know so many people Uh, Larry and Frank, that actually love participating live in the process and do not for a second intend to mail in the ballot. Now, I know some people are in states where that's the norm, but it's really a process that many people hold near and dear to their hearts. And I'm really glad that you've explained how to approach some of these propositions because it's just that important. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. Join us next Saturday at 6 p.m. for another episode of Today with Dr. Wendy, headlines with a silver lining. God bless you, have a great week.